We begin in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This month we're teaching through the Apostles' Creed. It's important to remember that this creed was first used as the vow for water baptism. And every time we say this creed or the Nicene Creed, we're bumping up against the promise that we made as Christ followers for our faith journey. And it's a beautiful thing. If you confess the creed with some level of agreement, you are a Christian rooted in orthodoxy, and that's a good thing. And sort of upping your promise, remembering your vow. The creed begins, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it's taking us weeks, but we got that far. The next segment is the longest part of the creed. It's devoted to Jesus. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This segment that begins, or this whole segment about Jesus begins about Jesus first, his relationship to the Father. That Jesus is God's only son. And then it moves to Jesus' relationship to us as human beings. Jesus becomes one of us. He suffers to associate with all that it means to be human. He, and then the section ends with the belief that Jesus is coming back. It's a story that has not yet been completed. He's going to be coming back forever to be a part of the human experience. So there's lots of things to chat about here. But back to the opening phrase, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. The claim that Jesus Christ was God's son is packed with deep theological conviction that Jesus was not just human, The early disciples knew that that right at the start of Jesus' ministry, they knew he was representing God as a prophet, but they were suspicious that it was more than that, that something else was going on. The way, for instance, that he talked about the Torah, this is God's commands, you know, those first five books of Genesis are filled with these commands directly from God. And the way that Jesus talked about those commands seemed odd, no prophet. Nobody had ever spoken about them like he did. So repeatedly, for instance, in Matthew 5, Jesus references an Old Testament command given by God to Moses in the Torah. And he would say something like this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, and then he'd iterate a command. But then he would say, but I tell you, and he would shift the command. I read one Jewish scholar critiquing these passages of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, who was a Jew, and basically said Jesus would actually reference one of the commands given to Moses by God, and then proceeded to say, but I say to you, and change it. He writes, who does this Jesus think he is? God? Exactly. This did not get past the earlier disciples either. They knew something was up. He was speaking in a way no one else had spoken. Then there were the miracles. Now, 
That wasn't hugely odd because Old Testament prophets did miracles, but Jesus did some things in a kind of a different manner even than them when it came to the miraculous. So here's an example. This is Luke chapter eight. One day Jesus said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall, a little storm came up down from the lake and the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger, right? So when fishermen feel like they're in great danger, it's a legit deal. So the disciples went and woke Jesus up. Master, master, we're going to drown, they tell him. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Freaky. Jesus asked his disciples, where was your faith? In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Nobody's seen anything like this. Who commands creation but the creator? Then check out this story. This is in Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him, and they led him up to a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before him. That word is actually metamorpho. It means what's inside comes out, right? Like a metamorphosis of a, of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, right? There's, there's the, the, the little crawling caterpillar has that butterfly inside that thing, right? And it comes out and it turns, transforms it. So here he's this, he's in front of them and he was metamorphosized. He was changed before them and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I think that's funny. And, and, they, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. He was just frightened. It was foot and mouth problem. Uh, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud came, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him suddenly when they looked around. They no longer saw Moses. They no longer saw Elijah. They no longer saw anyone but except Jesus. It wasn't, though, until after the resurrection that these stories started coming together. And they began to realize that this Jesus was not just a representative of God, but that in some way, Jesus was God. This is deeply problematic for a Jew to even begin to think. We'll talk about that more in a second. Peter references this transfiguration moment after the resurrection in 2 Peter, and he's telling them why they should believe. And he says to them in that text, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Referring to this Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's referencing that. The gospel writers also point to this sort of divine interaction that they would have when they had an interaction with Jesus Christ when he came into the world. In John 1.1 says it explicitly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, creator. 
In him was life and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, and this word that was with God and this word that was God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God showed up with us. Luke writes in Luke 1, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you to Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. They began to hear that term, Son of God. And, and, and honestly, there is a sense in which all of us are sons and daughters of God. That's true. Romans 8 says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God, right? But there is a way, and the creed focuses on this point, that Jesus Christ was different from any other human that had ever come here in the past, will ever come here now or in the future. He first came from God. <laughs> in Galatians 4.4 it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Didn't create him. He sent him, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was sent, not created. In Romans 8.3, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be an offering, sin offering, and to be condemned as, so he condemned sin in sinful people. Jesus was sent. Jesus himself speaks to this in John 3.16 and 17, very popular text, most of you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus Christ was sent. And then this seals it. This is in John 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father. And after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you've given me to do. And now father, watch, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, Jesus Christ was preexistent to Bethlehem. The first time he shows up in this planet wasn't the first time he existed. He always existed. Jesus did not first appear as a human. He was always in God and is God, not a mere extension of God's essence, he is God. In Philippians 2, Paul says it, your attitude should be that as in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he empties himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness. He comes from God's presence, God's essence into humanity. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbles himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is why when the Nicene Creed speaks of Jesus, saying he was the son of God, it, it adds to it. And it says this, 
The Apostles' Creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, but the Nicene Creed adds, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. <laughs> what are they doing? They're pressing the issue is that you touch Jesus, you're touching God. The church was saying, let's not entertain any confusion God was in the one we call Jesus from the beginning to end and equally. The one we call Jesus was in God from eternity and there is no time or moment when Jesus was not God. This is Christianity. This is a stumbling block for the Jews. This is a foolishness to other people. This is where you're going to have folks that are, that are in the context of Islam push back on Jesus, even though we respect him as a prophet. This is our distinctive. Jesus is God. God is triune. God transforms our humanity. Why? Not because Jesus was a Jewish prophet who spoke in parables or welcomed strangers, which is beautiful, or favored the poor, or forgave sinners, or critiqued the social structures of his day, all wonderful things which should be continued. But that's not how he transformed the world. Jesus, God transformed us because Jesus was God become human. Jesus' divinity was deemed critical for salvation story because divinity becomes human, which made it possible for humans to share in divinity. <laughs> this is at the heart of what we call salvation. It's not that God makes us think differently, although we do. It's that God gets in us and we participate in something that's other than us, God's very nature. It says in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the, our knowledge of him who has called us. He's calling us by his own glory and goodness, his glory and goodness, not ours. Through these, his glory and his goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises. Why? So that through these promises, you and I may participate in the divine nature. Shazam! And escape, yes, the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desire. See, Christianity isn't about just being a goody two-shoes. It's not just about embracing morals and standards and policies that has all that stuff in it. But it's about connecting with life that is beyond what we humans have on our own. It's about connecting with divine life. That's why huge parts of the Christian church don't talk about event salvation. They don't talk about, have you made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's not the most relevant question. It's a relevant question, but it's not the most relevant question. Not, have you done something? Have you made a decision? The relevant question is, are you walking in the life of God? Are you participating in the nature of God that only comes through Christ right now? Is there any evidence in your life that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead in you? It's a now moment. It's a cooperation with the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity. Not can you articulate doctrine well or have just a really good devotional life. Not only 
Did Jesus come from God? He returned back to God without losing the place he had before he left. Divinity becomes human to redeem humanity, to save it, and in some way deify it in some salvific way. We don't become part of the Trinity. Don't misunderstand that. We don't become God. But somehow the Trinity welcomes us into the life that's in God, and it spills into us, and we're energized, and we're filled, and we're made alive, and we face life differently because of, the, not because of some idea, because of some uh, political or social construct. I mean, it has that stuff in it. But just by the very fact that no matter what's going on, we can participate in a life that's beyond this world. In the Creed, let me just leap just ahead of it a little bit. He said he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. See, Jesus returned to his place in God as God. Before he arrived in Bethlehem, he had a place. He still has that place. After his passion, he sits with God as God. That's why the creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. <laughs> in the Jewish tradition, which is where the first disciples emerged from, the designation Lord, never used for humans only used for God. Early followers applied it to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Thomas says it most decisively in John when he speaks of the risen Christ. In John 20, Thomas said to the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. They were fond of using the title Kyrios, which meant Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say the creed and call Jesus Lord, we are saying that worship and obedience to Jesus Christ is worship and obedience to God. As Lord and God, Jesus exercises absolute authority over our lives. That's why Paul continues when he talks about Jesus didn't grasp his deity, but submitted and went through the life as a human being, even to the point of a cross. Then the next verse says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God. Now, you can understand how this messed with these early Jewish thinkers, these disciples, these Christ followers, because Judaism is a monotheistic faith. In fact, their great Jewish prayer, known as the Shema, it's a, it was the Jewish morning creed, they would say. It was just simply, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no gods in Jewish thought or in Islam. They're monotheistic. Just God, no gods. Paul reiterates this, Ephesians 4. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the church wrestled here. If the Father is God and Jesus is God, which is the direction that the revelation was pointing, are we moving into ditheism? Are there two gods? And if we have the Holy Spirit who's talked about in that same way as God, are we moving into you know, some sort of a polytheistic perspective? Others, as they're wrestling with this in the early church, thought, well, maybe God was Father in the beginning, 
And then he changed modalities and he became son in the, the cross and then became the spirit as he falls upon the earth. So that God sort of had different modalities you know, so he's father in creation, but the father changes to be son in the passion. And then after the resurrection, as the Pentecost comes, the God is now spirit, same one God, different modalities. It's called uh, monarchal modation is the technical term for that. But the careful thinkers deemed that those iterations were unfaithful to the revelation they had. Didn't explain it. There's not three gods. They're not two gods. There's just one God. And all kinds, of revela- all kinds of wrestling happened in the first 500 years over this. How can we talk about Jesus and be faithful to the scriptures and what they knew about the life and the person of Jesus and what they knew about the presence and the power of the Spirit? It was finally Tertullian who steps into the middle of this. He's in the second century. And he asserts that the truth of Revelation demanded that they would make appropriate distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make appropriate distinctions between them while maintaining a fundamental sameness in God, that it was still just one God. Christians do not believe in three gods. We do not believe in one God who appears in three different ways. Christians believe in one God in three persons. That just cleared it up right now, I know it. (laughs) Augustine writes, and I I quoted this last week, but listen to it again. Some of this is a little opaque, but don't freak out. I mean, my guess is if you're going for brain surgery, the surgeon knows it a little better than you do. And you you might have a great acupuncturist, but you'd never let them do brain surgery on you. Right? There's just some areas that are a little more difficult to try to wrap your around. You have to be more careful, erudite, as you talk about and juxtapose issues and say, well, if this then, if this then, not just be, aw shucks, that makes sense. You, you can't just, aw shucks this. There's some degree of technicality that is here that has to be cautiously approached. That's why you should on some level appreciate the uh, theological ac- academician, on some level. But here's a, a quote from Augustine, and he says this about it, and it sounds again a little opaque, but if you spend enough time with this, you know, over whiskey and a good cigar, it starts to make sense, right? (laughs) Here's what he says, quote, thus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and each of these by himself is God. And at the same time, they are all one God, and each of them by himself is a complete substance. And yet, they're all one substance. The Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. But the Father is only the Father. The Son is only the Son. The Holy Spirit is only the Holy Spirit. To all three belong the same eternity, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. In the Father is unity. In the Son is equality. In the Holy Spirit, the harmony of unity and equality. And these three attributes all are are all one because of the Father, all equal because of the Son, and all harmonious because of the Holy Spirit. End quote. See, here, here's what I want us to see today, simply. Jesus is at the center of our faith. And the very name Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian confession. 
That's why so much of the creed is around him. Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, which comes from the root, the Lord saves. In both Matthew 1, Luke 1, the angel says to name the child born of Mary, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the Lord who came to save. He, as God, came from the realm of God to save human beings in the realm of humanity, and he went back to sit in the realm of God until he returns to permanently take up residence with the human race. This is the story that shapes our lives, man. We're Christians. So we say that. All right, so let me close with this. Uh, I, I actually am close with that, but I want to do a little corrective here. So, and I want to be as kind as I possibly can in my critique, so please don't get mad at me. Um, the equation between Jesus and Christ is absolute. Jesus is Christ. Christ is Jesus. Um, often in sacred texts, the name Christ is the simple designation of Jesus. For all Christians historically, to speak of the Christ was to speak of Jesus. And when the Christians thought of being in the presence of the Holy Spirit, even, they thought of themselves as being, and you've read it over and over again, in Christ, right? There was never a thought of Christ being one thing and Jesus being another. They never bifurcated Jesus Christ. In referring to Jesus' preexistent state in God, Paul writes to us that our attitude should be the same as that in Christ Jesus. And then he iterates how Christ Jesus was in God's presence before time. He didn't just say Christ. I'm saying this to say there is no such thing as a cosmic Christ and Jesus. There's only one Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus which carries cosmic implication. Right? One of my favorite writers on the planet is Richard War. I know there are a number of Rohr fans in here in our sanctuary family, and rightly so. He is beautiful, poetic, mystic in the Christian tradition. I have most of his books. I read his daily email blog. If you don't get it, you should get it. It's sweet. Over the past number of years, Rohr has spoken up about how Christians have been unfair and unkind to those outside of the Christian tradition and part of other faith traditions. And uh, he's encouraged people of faith everywhere to look for the common ground that we share with other faiths. And I think that's right. It's called the perennial tradition. And I actually love it. I love those things that he says about it. But though I enjoy him, one of the key ways he encourages intra-faith openness is in an impulse to separate Jesus from what he calls the cosmic Christ, suggesting that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth appears separately from Christ, the cosmic one, Right? And consequently, the cosmic Christ, not Jesus of Nazareth, can engage with all people at all times, irrespective of their faith tradition. Now, I applaud, I really do, uh, Richard Rohr's sensitivity to the criticism that Christians often have to everyone else that are not like them, and how he flags the inappropriate disparaging uh, many Christians have toward other people of other faiths. However, there are ways to address the problems of elitism and false judgment without changing Christian theology. The nature of Jesus Christ is a highly technical discussion. 
which both a knowledge of the Greek language and Aristotelian philosophy are deeply helpful. The conversation is not a casual conversation. It is the stuff of theological academics. The issue of Jesus and his nature has been the point of conversation by the best theological academicians throughout history all the way up to the Athanasian Creed 500. They talked about it for hundreds of years. How can we say this? How can we say this? We, that's not faithful. Let's back up. We need to restate it here. Think of that. 500 years of erudite conversation about who Jesus is and how can we be faithful in speaking of him. There is no way that you're going to neatly address this with a practical, pastoral, common sense kind of approach. That kind of approach is tragically oversimplifying the issue and necessarily pale. Unwittingly, right? Even though I think uh, Father Rohr is a highly pastoral, wonderful mystic, he carves out simple, beautiful, casual language about the Son of God. He's not an academician. And that's the problem. I think unwittingly, this man whom I deeply respect is advocating to a kind of neo-Arianism. That's the view of Jesus Christ. Arianism was a heresy that tried to recast who Jesus was. So as your bishop... I just have to, I feel like I just have to throw a yellow flag out and blow my whistle to use a football referee metaphor because some of you know what time of year this is. It's one of the most important times of the year. Are you ready? We don't get to recast Christianity in the 21st century. We just don't. This is the faith we receive. No one that we among us gets to make it up. So next time we'll address the virgin birth and the physical torment Jesus endured and why the creed addresses that so specifically. Amen.